And so what I'm mm-hmm. asking like for, for readers, listeners, everyone to do is to just be willing. <laughs> I think that that like so many of us who are in, in this space, you know, as communists, as anarchists, as black feminists, all these disciplines and, and sort of politics, I think the biggest thing that we have is that we're willing. And I think that our willingness has to extend to other people who may not yet be willing, but but who but who are worthy of of that willingness. And so I think, yeah, the the solution for me, if there is one, I don't I don't I don't know that there is a, a solution. But if there is a solution, it only comes through that. Welcome to the death panel to support the show and get access to the second weekly episode just for patrons become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you want to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore so i am here today with a very special guest please welcome deshaun l harrison who is here to talk about their new book belly of the beast the politics of anti-fatness as anti-blackness deshaun Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You are such a multi-hyphenate. Um, people may have heard <laughs> of you from your work with Wear Your Voice or like n- a number of the advocacy efforts that you've done over the years. But um, what I'm really excited to talk to you about today is that the, the argument in your book and the sort of position that your book takes. So I wanted to start us off with actually just talking about what is anti-fatness? And, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah. So I think that um, I love this question. And it's it's also something that I am offering a, a more formal definition of in a chapter that I'm writing for an anthology. But essentially, like anti-fatness, what I'm, what I'm naming is that anti-fatness is anti-blackness. Right. Which is to say that, like, if anti-blackness is what creates the world. Right. And, and this iteration of the world and, and is what gives meaning to everything in it then that means it sort of functions as like an outline or or a paradigm of sorts um, that sort of produces like this illogical or these illogical experiences for, for people. And in this case, for fat people. So anti-fatness is like the, a sort of framework that helps to sustain anti-Blackness that, that is produced by anti-Blackness as a way to ensure it's sustainability and it's, you know, it's what determines who lives and who dies. Right. And, and, um, and who is criminalized, who's penalized, who's objectified. And so I think like, that's like a a general definition of the, of, of what anti-fatness as anti-blackness means, what it means for anti-fatness to be anti-blackness. But like, you know, it's, it's all of the varying social, cultural, institutional, global structures or, or global instances under which, you know, fat folks are harmed and abused and subjugated. And in particular, it is specific to Black fat folks. Right. And I think what's so important about this, too, is that the so the entire sort of foundation of American 
healthcare, which is arguably the standard of capitalist healthcare, which we've then exported um, to the world in a very colonial way, is oriented around the the medicalization of like the management of bodies. And I think what's really important is that often when we talk about uh, anti-fatness or fat discrimination within the realm of medical discrimination, it's kind of at this really distance perspective where people will sort of it's like it gives the vibe of the very 90s sort of oh we're you know we're colorblind we're like in a post-race reality where you have people sort of engaging with the um body politics of fat phobia in healthcare but there hasn't really been like a lot of work that actually tries to then like deal with the intersection of how that overlaps with anti-blackness. Can we talk a little bit about how this dynamic, which is incredibly violent um, and, and pernicious, and once you start to notice it, it shows up everywhere, right? But let's talk through some scenarios of how this works out in in health access and healthcare. Yeah, so I think that part of what my book is is arguing is specific to fat black trans folks, right? So for instance, fat trans folks in general and fat black trans folks more specifically are paying two to three times more for gender affirming surgeries than than their thin counterparts, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that's something that I think a lot of folks are are not super aware of. But for 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 the folks who are able to to you know afford to pay for um, these surgeries, oftentimes through crowdfunding for a lot of Black folks, they're forced to pay like a higher amount than those who are thin. And I think that's a really, a really big instance of, of how this sort of functions in the medical field, specifically to for, specifically for trans folks, because for so many trans folks, those surgeries are really significant, right? Um, and so what does it mean if this super significant surgery that helps you to feel affirmed in your body is something that is that you're having to pay twice as much for or three times as much for solely because of your BMI. But I think like with regards to BMI, like then we have to get into the, the anti-black history of, of BMI and, and where it comes from, how it operates. Right. And, and acknowledging that this, this singular Belgian man <laughs> use French French men as a sort of determiner in this Enlightenment era for what the ideal body is. And that becomes the thing that we use 300 years later as the thing that determines who is and is, and is not, quote unquote, healthy. Right. right. But then even beyond, even beyond <laughs> that, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm saying French men, but to be more specific, really is cis thin white men, right? Um, but then you have to go further back than that when you're thinking about sort of the, the origins of, of the medical industry in general, or at, at least this, this, you know, institutionalized medical industry where some of the first known quote unquote illnesses are from white anthropologists and European anthropologists and European white supremacists who are 
trying to find ways to control slaves from 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 rioting or from from revolting right mm-hmm. so they come up with these with these varying illnesses that they're labeling as mental illnesses and, and and as physical illnesses that they can punish the slave for exhibiting right but that only shows up in in black folks right in the enslaved african and so like these are sort of like origins of some of the the, the biggest pieces of our medical industry. These are these are like these are right. some of the, the the biggest parts of of our industry that then goes into how so many are engaged today. Right, where doctors won't engage fat folks outside of their weight, or where a number of fat folks are without health care because of their their size, or because of their inability to find employment because of their size. Right. So right. all these things that that work together to sort of help sustain the the foundation of the medical industry which is anti-fatness right and and i feel like for me when i when i try and think this like the most simple clear idea of it that comes through from your book is how you talk about health as this kind of asset right it's like a a theoretical thing that one can possess but it's also located in a specific identity which is like a thin white body and because the entire sort of system of not just healthcare but health research and administration all the social and structural determinants of health from as you're saying employment to housing to um you know whether or not a police officer is going to deem you threatening and how that police officer is going to behave towards you if you're in crisis or you're just happen to be around when there's some sort of disruption or chaos, right? You know, there is, there is fundamentally this medicalization of black people that has always been this kind of way to scientifically justify racism. This is the origin of eugenics. This is, you know, unfortunately, um, as medicalized people, you and I are both disabled, like I'm, you know, we are kept alive by these systems that are foundationally right. anti-fat and anti-black and trade on the, um, you know, the desire to cure blackness and cure fatness and cure illness um, right. and cure difference until you can reach, lum- you know, the, the, the ideal man, the perfect body, which is a thin white body, um, you know, and and this is sort of just the unfortunate reality that undergirds the entire system. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, it's exactly that. And it's like, you know, at what point do we start to understand this as something that's fundamentally harmful, right? Like so much about our efforts are about trying to salvage this because we don't understand that it's something that's not salvageable, something that's that's designed to do exactly what it's doing. And I think that so much about that is because who is centered in in these efforts oftentimes is white disabled or white fat folks, right? And I think that part of the intervention that I'm making in the book is that white folks who are marginalized by their fatness or by their disability are experiencing a sort of residue of what their bodies help to sustain. Right. Mm-hmm. So like you're ex- like the, the, the violence of what, of what's being experienced in, in, in the medical, in, in the medical field by, by non-black folks who are fat or disabled, right. Is, 
a response, right, to to anti-blackness um, that that they were never intended to actually be a part of. And now I think it's like, well, so what does it mean for me to be to be white, but also be experiencing a violence that that I was never intended to experience? Right. Because right? they weren't intended to experience that. And so it's like such a good point. It, it's sort of it's, it's 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 it becomes this thing where it's like now you've sort of you've failed whiteness. <laughs> It's so true, though. It's like I feel like some people, their activism is literally seated in their psychic psychic outrage that they are being mistreated in a way that they are like that their uh, race should disqualify them from being right. treated. You know, yep. sorry not to interrupt. No, 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 no. That, go that, on. That, that is the that is the the closing point. Literally, it's like, you know, like you 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 fell whiteness. And so then. Now, now you're having to overcompensate and, and, and try to figure out what it is that you can do to try to, you know, salvage um, this this thing because you you deserve to be treated better than what you're being treated. Right. But then it's like, OK, but once you're treated better, then what comes next for the for this thing that is foundational to my abuse right and in you know and in saying you know that there is a disabled body that doesn't deserve this kind of treatment that you're also implying that there is someone who does deserve it and i, I think right. this is this is why i love the work of people like liap and moshe who has this intervention mm-hmm. trying to unite stru- struggles for prison abolition and the history and struggle for the abolition and closure of institutions and residential facilities like um, anywhere from long-term care facilities and nursing homes to the old school asylum system. And it's it's important because, you know, fundamentally often these the sort of anti-black um, framework is has been kept at a distance both from like mad rights organizing, fat rights organizing, and um, disability justice organize or disability rights organizing. And um, obviously, the disability justice movement has been working really hard to push away from that. But I think what your work does also is this very important synthesis of these, um, you know, the disability perspective and the perspective of anti-fatness, but but actually seats it properly in, in racial capitalism in the context it deserves to be seated in. And yeah, that might be a hard pill for some people to swallow, but I wonder if you could sort of talk about the importance of swallowing that pill and, and being critical about the context that our care has originated in and what the structural violence of our care actually is. Yes. So, um, uh, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> oh, you don't have to. Oh my god. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I, I, I love this, and I want to like be as clear as possible. I, I think that there is something like. So what I love about Sabrina Strings's work, right, with Fear in the Black Body, is that right. she's sort of making like this very clear intervention that slavery and in, and in particular, like the way that this sort of violence is being mapped onto Black women's bodies, is because it's the it's their flesh right it's or rather it's their body their their being that is that is being traded right that that's deserving of being traded so it's i think oftentimes the way that we talk about racial capitalism in particular and i wanted to just go to that part of the question before i go to the first part but i think the way that we talk about racial capitalism sometimes is is as though it's you know this this structure that was solely economic. And I think that what Sabrina Strings, the type of intervention that she's making is like, this is something that is 
it's happening because it's because of monetary value, but the the value of or rather that monetary value being being traded is off of the backs of actual enslaved individuals, right? And I think that's such an important point because then it becomes, well, this is not just about a sort of economic intervention. This is also about the, the very subjugation of actual individuals. And I just think that that's always a very important thing to name. But in doing so, I, <laughs> I forgot the first half of your question. Well, no, I mean, I, I was just saying that I, I thought that uh, I wanted you to speak on why like anti-fatness is like the, a critique of anti-fatness is actually a really good vehicle for like making sure that we don't um, end up in that tendency to abstract and distance and sort of dematerialize like the harms of these systems that we talk about because like the hegemony 101 is right to like make it seem like big all omnipotent and also like untouchable (laughs) but it's actually like a very material thing yeah no exactly and i think yeah so i think that also goes back to sabrina strings work where it's like talking about anti-fatness allows for us to be clear about the ways that that these things are not just, you know, they don't just intersect, but that they're they're created by one another and that they're sustained by one another. Uh, and I think that that oftentimes is something that is overlooked, too, which which gets into, like you just said, like it makes it sort of difficult for people to sort of be clear about the material reality of so many folks, because it's it's thought of it, it's thought of as things that are separable. But but what I'm the intervention that I'm making and what Sabrina Strings is offering is that these things are inseparable. And in fact, trying to separate them only further harms individuals who who cannot be separate, whose identities cannot be separated. Uh, and so, like, I think critiquing anti-fatness does a beautiful job of help, helping us arrive to a clear a clearer understanding of the ways that I think anti-blackness is sustained by by these structures, right? It's, it's almost like it acts as a leg. Um, and, and that hegemony, like you just said, you know, like part of, part of helping to sustain this hegemonic subjugating power um, that is anti-Blackness. And so by having like a cutting critique of anti-fatness, it allows for us to be clear about exactly the ways that these things are mapped onto varying bodies. And I think that that's essential. Right. And can you talk a little bit about the importance of why you wanted to in spe- like specifically map that onto the uh, like the trans mass experience, too? Yes. Yes. I, so that happened because I've read a lot, a lot of books in the fat studies field. I've read a lot of books in the black studies field and I've read a lot of books in the women, gender, sexuality studies field. And of course, you know, like subsequent or or underlying fields like queer and trans studies. Um, which are, of course, still growing. But in all of those disciplines, it sort of it requires that we separate who we are to be able to give language to our experiences. And in all of those cases and in every single one of those fields, the fat black trans mask individual is completely lost. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to provide language to or for fat black trans mass folks, non-binary folks, and as well as cis men, um, cis black men who have particular experiences that have been, I think, disregarded in fat studies that have been lost to back to the conversation that I think are very pivotal and necessary interventions to make on on their slash our behalf. 
So that's sort of how I arrived there. No, and I think it's so important because if you think about health as a kind of um, or the way that health is sold through the you know reproduction in American culture, there's kind of a gradient, right, where you have um, sort of like the thin white young woman is being like, I guess, like healthy. Like I'm thinking like Gwyneth Paltrow. I guess she's not that young anymore, but like she <laughs> she plays young, right? Um, <laughs> so like if if healthy is Gwyneth Paltrow, right, then the sort of furthest identity from that is the black masculine identity too. And and the sort of just the mere existence of like a black mask identity in relation to the concept of health, like we have this tendency to um, pathologize that very identity and sort of say, oh, well, you know, like this person is quote unquote obese and therefore has these, you know, negative like determinants and is just sort of predisposed, like preordained, destined to these negative health outcomes. And I think few people, whether they're in healthcare or not, like ever stop to question the logic there, because actually, you know, as your book talks about, not only, um, you know, is the concept of like a BMI, like a very uh, skewed perspective and something that, you know, we need to abandon the same way we abandoned uh, other eugenic structures, like, I don't know, like the scale of like idiot to moron, right, that used to exist, Um, like BMI needs to go uh, the way that that did and like we can trash it right but people don't people don't really question these sort of quote-unquote like common sense assumptions about the health impacts of quote-unquote obesity right yeah no people they don't and i think that part of what i love about the book fat politics is that it sort of works through exactly that that you know Every every it sort of gets to the heart of the the I think at this point sort of cliche. What is it? Causation is not correlation is not causation. Correlation is not causation. Yeah, yes, like yeah, very 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 cliche at this point. But I think that that book does a really good job of like being clear about why that is the case, right? And how so much about how quote unquote obesity is being labeled and named is and and also sustained is through scientists who don't understand that very simple cliche right uh who who haven't who who are not clear about the fact that a lot of fat people dying doesn't mean that they're dying because they're obese because a lot of thin people dying doesn't mean that they're dying because they're thin right but but right like people would never say that like you would right. never be like, like never <laughs> oh i wonder if she, i wonder if they died because like they were you know only 120 pounds right you like, know like no one is saying that <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 harmful it's like you know where where at what point do we require scientists to do science right <laughs> to, to actually <laughs> to actually be like mindful about the work that they that they are supposed to be doing. Um, and so I, I love that book because I think it gets to the heart of what you just said. Uh, and and it, it is also one of the first books I read that was like, oh, I have to write something because this is really, really important, particularly in fast studies. And so, yeah, I think that there is like no one, like you said, no one is thinking about like the 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 health, the sort of like issues that arise with fat people's well-being from having to navigate a world that that outright understands us as unworthy like 
needed necessary to be discarded of, you know, engaging us in sort of like a really genocidal um, eugenicist effort mm-hmm. and, and what that does right to, to the psyche, to your, to your body. Um, and to borrow from the beginning of the third chapter, right. If, if we're using the definition from the World Health Organization, right, that already discounts Black folks in general, because we're also navigating a world where we know that we can be shot by police if we, the moment we walk out the door, or they can come right. into our homes and, and and shoot us, right? And we also know that, you know, we are experiencing, uh, like, this high volume where, where Black folks who can give birth are experiencing disproportionate rates with, uh, with you know, death, because of the ways that doctors are interacting with them in their bodies and, and disregarding their levels of pain intolerance. Right. Uh, and so it's like, you know, all these number of things that, that outright make black folks unsafe, right. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And I think that all of that has to be considered and it's not considered like you just mentioned with the ways that like the very like notion of, people's bodies and body size being a disease right makes them incapable of of being cared for right or undeserving of being cared for right and not to use like the laziest interview tactic in the world but like whatever i want to read uh the first uh the beginning of that chapter because you you do lay out the who definition and then you lay out your interpretation of it which i think is just is fantastic. Thank you so much. Quote, um, according to the World Health Organization, health is the state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not just the absence of disease or infirmity. As I interpret it, this means that for one to be healthy, they must not only be non-disabled, but must also be in an environment that allows for them to feel mentally secure, psychically safe, and socially well. As such, this means that Black people, especially those of us who exist with multiple marginalized identities, are always already unhealthy because we are always already unsafe. And I I just really appreciate what you do in this book to sort of reassert a, a different definition of health, one that um, does acknowledge the harm that it causes and the anti-Black violence of what the sort of violent fascist concept of health really is. You know, in the first chapter, you ask the question, what does it look like to talk about health not as something that the black fat body has been removed from, but rather as something created precisely for fat black people or the black fat to never have access to? Can you talk about this idea more for a second? Because I think this is going to be a point that our listeners will really appreciate. Yeah. So it goes, it sort of goes back to um, what I was naming earlier around um, the white anthropologists who are making up essentially (laughs) uh, illnesses to punish slaves for revolting. Right. Like tryptomania or right. Exactly. So it's like, if this is the, the origin of, of what health is right. If this is the origin of the medical industry, if this is the origin of sort of defining or, or, um, determining what is and is not uh, a disability, right? Then, in what way would health be something that is that that th- the black fat could ever live inside of, right? right? In what way could could black folks ever be safe and secure under 
health and its parameters if the very foundation is something that was created with the intent to 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 keep us subjugated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like that is such to me, it feels like such an important um, intervention because <laughs> going going back to this, so many people are really hell bent on making sure that we um, find ways to to save the medical industry save, um, save America. And I'm like, you know, this shit cannot be salvaged. Um, mm-hmm. I hope that person, but I'm like, this, it, this cannot be salvaged, right? Like this, this is something that cannot be redressed or, 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 or saved in any way. And it cannot be because the foundation of it is it, it's built on top of on top of our bodies. It's built on top of our dismemberment. Right. Mm-hmm. So the entire purpose of chapter three is trying to get the reader to be clear about what health, what health actually is, not just in the ways that we talk about and and and, and define it now, but what it has always existed as and, and also understand that the ways that we define it now can only be because of the way that it has always existed. Uh, and if and if that is the case, right, if we understand that public health very largely agrees with and uses that definition from the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. if we understand this to be like the, uh, the sort of, you know, foundation to what all of this is, but we also understand how black folks are engaged in the world and in particular how fat black folks are engaged in the world then we have to be clear on the fact that this is not something that we can be that that we can save um and i and i i wanted to make that intervention very clear because i think that it it helps having that like foundational sort of theoretical intervention helps set the foundation for the rest of the book where I'm like, you know, well, this is what is happening with the war on drugs and the war on obesity. We already know that health is incongruent, right? So if we know that, then then we also can understand how this war on obesity can become an actual thing and how that interacts with the war on drugs. Or if we know like the about the incongruency of health, then we can also be clear about how Black folks, Black fat folks in particular, health has been used or, or lack of health has been used against them in the court of law to defend their murders by police, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of these things help to, to be made more clear, I think, by being very clear about what health actually is and, and what it, how it actually operates in the world. Yeah. And actually, do you mind talking about uh, the specific instance that you get into in your book, which is where you talk about the way that um, that you just mentioned about the way that Eric Gardner's health was weaponized in in court? Yeah. Whew, yes. Sorry to make you. Ch- I mean, if you don't want to, we absolutely <laughs> do not have to touch on it, I, you know, but no. Yeah, I, I think it, I think that it is important. I probably won't go like, you know, into too much detail, but I will name that. Eric Garner in 2014, Mike Brown is sort of what kicked off um, this sort of like new era that we're still living under this BLM era, this quote unquote racial justice era that we're experiencing. But Eric Garner was murdered before Mike Brown. And from the moment that he was engaged by police to the moment 
literally uh, it's up until this very moment, his size and his perceived quote unquote health issues played a significant role in how he was engaged by police on that day. And then after that, lawyers, prosecutors, judges, police officers have all used and even even medical examiners have all mm-hmm. used his, his weight and his and his under quote unquote underlying health issues as justification for for his death, as if we didn't all witness him being held in a chokehold. Right. Like right. we all witnessed that on camera. And yet it doesn't matter because to everyone involved, prosecutors, police, medical examiners, judges, what actually mattered was that, quote unquote, even a bear hug could have killed him. Right. But who but but who is 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 seeing a bear in in New York City? No one. Right. And who's giving sort of bear hugs in New York City? Certainly not a police officer. Right. Right. So it's like not on Staten Island, especially exactly like (laughs) in the middle of the city. Like that's not happening. Yeah. So like what Eric Garner was not, which is what I say in the book, what he was not before he was put in that chokehold was dead. Right. So mm-hmm. irrespective of of whether you believe that that something else could have killed him, something else can kill all of us. But what kills us is what kills us. <laughs> right. Like right. like like when someone is 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 shot in, in the street, we don't say, well, you know, yeah, you know, they were shot and they bled out. But, you know, even a car could have hit them like, OK, right. It didn't. Right. <laughs> right. But that but that is that is what. That's how fat black folks are engaged as ways to justify our murders. And it works because the law is on is on their side. Right. And so I think that also just that that goes to show, you know, just how expansive these modes of violence are and continues to go back to my I I guess my thesis at this point, the premise of my argument, which is that this is not salvageable. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, there were so many times when I was reading your book where I just had to like stop and sit for a moment and like renegotiate and reevaluate the weight that I gave to like a critical perspective that tries to specifically look for anti-fatness because as as you flesh out this lens in your book, it's a, you know, arguably it's a small book. It's a short book. Everyone should read it. It's an easy, accessible book to read. It's a joy to read. Um, It has a simple task, which is a very heavy lift. And you've done a a really great job um, being so precise here, which is, you you know, as we've sort of been saying this whole time is really important because anti-fatness is, you know, is that fundamental superstructural architecture, right? Especially as anti-Blackness and especially as it relates to, you know, the pandemic too, because the idea that Eric Garner's death was somehow, um, you know, something that the state was uh, able to avoid liability or accountability for and that what justified it was like his size, right? Like his (laughs) physical space that he took up. You know, that is the foundation of eugenics is looking at a body and saying you take up 
more space than you're worth, right? Yeah. And that is ultimately what this is. And it's so, it is so primary to so much of our culture, right? I mean, it's, it, it, this is really what diet culture is selling, right? This is what Gwyneth Paltrow is selling. This is one, this is a huge industry, right? And it's also an incredible um, foundation of our society. And it's something that's not, you know, it's not new, right? (laughs) Like it's been around for, hundreds of years in the United States when I was doing research for the book that I just finished writing. Um, you know, I actually am glad that my manuscripts are not done yet. And so my partner and I can go back in and work in some citations of your work, but, um, because it's so, it overlaps in so many ways, but you know, one of the things that we were doing is we were going back through archival New York times articles, um, in their archive (laughs) looking for, um, mentions of something called the work cure, which was peddled by the rehabilitationists. And the rehabilitationists were the people who sought to cure or fix disability, but also fatness and also, you know, quote unquote, vagrancy and laziness and other kinds of deviancy. Um, they're sometimes called like deviant farmers. And the eugenics movement arises in opposition to their work and what the eugenicists are really saying like what their critical intervention was which has become this terrible force within our society which is the foundation of neoliberalism really like is eugenics um and this is why your work is so important i think because it shows all of this so well is that the rehabilitationists to the eugenicists were crazy because they were spending all this money on people who were genetically doomed. And that wasn't a good cost benefit analysis and that society really should be spending public money elsewhere. And in your book, you talk about how this austerity mindset is applied to research agendas too, right? Because that same statement by eugenicists, right? Like by one of these, you know, early pioneers like Davenport in like 1908, who's saying Mm -hmm. the rehabilitationists who want to cure everyone are crazy. You know, we can't (laughs) afford to give everyone gym memberships. People need to earn their own money to buy their own gym memberships, right? Or, um, you know, that is the approach that American culture has towards fatness. It's yep. fundamentally eugenic. No, I, oh, I don't have anything to add to that. I love that you, I love the way you just broke that down. Absolutely. Well, I, I wonder if we could talk about how this is playing out through, throughout the pandemic, because I can't, you know, just the pain of like understanding the violence of like the death of Eric Garner through a lens of anti-fatness is like horrible, but I cannot imagine how awful it's been throughout this pandemic to see the way that that death has been framed as inevitable. And and this is part of like the war on obesity framework that you get Mm -hmm. into very well in the book. Uh, Yes. So I I, I actually wrote a piece recently um, for Warrior Voice. um, And it was all about the way the concern that I have for fat folks as we start to experience worse and worse realities because of climate change. Right. Right. Um, Katrina, um, when, when Katrina happened in New Orleans, of course we 
all witnessed and, and heard about, you know, like the way that Bush didn't respond and the way that the city officials didn't really respond. And 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 it is one of the the, the biggest tragedies in, in recent history. Yeah. What so many people do not know is that while that was happening on 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 the outside, right, in in a major hospital in Louisiana, doctors were quite literally <laughs> determining who would live and who would die. Classic and, death panel. Yes. And they, you know, they call it triage. And we all, mm-hmm. whenever we go to the doctor or go to the ER, we all hear the word triage often. But there is no one set definition of triage. I was doing a lot of research for this and I was like, wow, like there are, there are hundreds of like official definitions of triage and they and they change depending on who you ask and 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 what facility you're at but these doctors they never had a plan for how they were going to to move fat folks um in in cases of emergency so they decided that instead of trying to to move these fat folks they literally injected them with a lethal injection. Um, and when one of them didn't die, they smuggled him with the pillow. Of course, most, if not all of these folks were black and they were also fat. Some of them had underlying or underlying um, conditions they're still some, executed by cost benefit yeah. analysis. Right. Some of them, but some of them had none. Some of them were there and were in quote unquote good health. Of course, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, <laughs> and they were still literally executed. And not only did they get away with it, but the person who led that, she became a professor and, and has been teaching on this as a standard for crisis response. And so my concern, and I'm, I'm bringing this up because it's, it's, it's leading me to this current pandemic. My concern is that this is legally justified, justified and justifiable, right? And is medically justified and justifiable. And so as, we're exper- as we are experiencing more and more climate disasters, which I recognize this pandemic to to be part of. Absolutely. Yeah. We are going to be witnessing more and more fat folks being executed and having, and having those murders be justified by the, by, by the people in charge. Right. Uh, The same thing happened. That's where I got 2012 from. The same thing happened in 2012 in New York, where there was this, this major climate disaster. Sandy. Yes. This major climate disaster, and just like in Louisiana, doctors refused to to move the fattest patients, and in both cases, these people were sort of left to struggle on their own. Right, rising water, no food, no no electricity. All these things are happening, and. What happened after Louisiana was first responders said they weren't even made aware that folks were still inside because had they known, they would have found a way to get them out. 
right? But doctors didn't even, didn't make known that that people were still inside, and why would they? They'd already murdered them. So with this pandemic, with COVID, I'm like, we've heard about the the lack of ventilators that hospitals have. We know about the resources that 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 are very limited in hospitals right now. We know that hospitals are overcrowded. We also know that under capitalism, right, they there could be <laughs> there could be unlimited resources, but we won't have unlimited resources because capitalism doesn't allow for that. Mm-hmm. So after reading about all of these things, I'm like, can you imagine how many people that have died this year and last year died because of a decision like those made in Louisiana and New York? Mm-hmm. And what will happen as we experience more and more climate disasters and more and more fat black folks and fat folks in general are forced into hospitals? Right. Like this, this is the material reality for so many people. And I think that that sort of like the depth of that is not often considered because it's like, well, you know, no way they're actually killing people but they are and <laughs> they're getting away with it and they're becoming professors and they're getting paid off right. and they, and they get to teach these, these very same methods to, to, to med students who then go who are already going into medical school with their own anti-fat biases because of the world that we're all socialized in. Mm-hmm. So I, I think like with regards to this current pandemic with COVID, COVID-19, we've already seen the way that like the CDC has, has continued to, um, target fat folks and quote unquote obesity as like this 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 number one health indicator um, for um, experiencing sort of the worst of COVID, and then we continue to see the ways that elected officials are creating policies and 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 writing regulations that directly harm fat folks in the midst of this, and on top of that we know that hospitals are experiencing a very limited amount of resources. And so I think that in, 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 in 10 years time, we will really know the full weight of just how harmful this pandemic has been to fat folks. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we know that right now. I I mean, the thing that, that really concerns me is that, in chapter five, you talk about this uh, sort of the origins of the quote unquote war on obesity, which is actually kind of if you think about that for a second, it gets really sickening. Right. Because it's like, well, what other, you know, group would you see the president declaring war on and everybody right. cheers like, right. Like it's kind of kind of fucking wild if you sit and think about it for just like any any time longer than most people think about it right um we just i think carelessly and mindlessly um reproduce these these anti-fat frameworks right because they're everywhere and you talk about how the obesity epidemic really comes from this study that had terrible methods and was using 30 year old data 
And yet it was published in JAMA anyways, and it got the full, you know, CDC MMWR treatment. And, you know, stop me if it sounds like COVID, right? Like we keep seeing, you know, the ways that bad science is funded and all that bad science does is replicate these um, fundamentally like violent and anti-Black frameworks of like fascist health. And, you know, you talk about how, despite the fact that basically within a year, it was made clear that like this study was bunk and like a huge disaster and shouldn't have been let out in the first place, you know, the, the myth of the obesity epidemic persisted, like the damage had been done. Yeah. And what COVID is doing is just like pouring lighter like fluid in the fire of the obesity epidemic, like reproduction, right? And like accelerating it to this point where we're just completely naturalizing the socially constructed vulnerability of fat people. Because if you really actually look at like why fat people are more likely to have worse health outcomes, most of that Um, When you actually look at studies that are well done or particularly, you know, looking at real um, experiences of like fat patients and not just extrapolating from like disaggregated data, like pulled from like wherever the fuck, like sometimes often funded by diet companies themselves, like, you know, what you actually see is that those health disparities can be explained by medical neglect right? because of, like, discrimination against the patient's weight. Mm -hmm. And, like, but yet we have completely, like, socially pathologized this as, no, 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 like, fatness is proximity. It is a living death, right? I mean, I think you've called it, like, a live that before. Yeah. Literally living as dead, um, the walking dead is what I is also what I what I named it. And and yeah, I we've we've witnessed this over time. Right. So I, I know I wrote about the 2004 journal entry, but then after, you know, years after that, we also had H1N1. Right. We had um, what I, was it influenza or. Um, yeah, the the bird flu. Yeah. So we've like we've had we've had varying like pandemics right epidemics that have that have happened and at the heart of each of those like fat folks have been harmed and so yes in this in this current pandemic we are we are experiencing a a, a sort of recreation of this this 2005 era from the cdc and I talked about this at the very beginning of the pandemic last year. I was like, I don't trust the, the CDC. And every I got so much flack about that. I was like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't listen. I don't listen to the, to the we CDC. We did too. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. And everyone was like, how can you not listen to the CDC? Blah, blah, blah. And then over time. It's like, no, we just have like questions about like, who's <laughs> science? Right. Like, That's like, all. Like, science and who like. Which science? You're, you are which literally data? being funded by. <laughs> the president to say whatever they want you to say like yeah this and, and that's how it has always functioned right and so yeah i'm i'm like we are we are witnessing uh a, a recreation of of that exact violence and i i really am like often afraid for for what for how much we will learn this has really impacted us in five to ten years so you 
in your maybe this is a good way to sort of think about that because actually if you if you sit with that idea right like you really see the stakes of why it's so important to unlearn any anti-fatness that you've acquired right because it's like you you may be listening to this and be like well you know they're ignoring the dangers and health just you know the really negative health effects of like being quote-unquote overweight right but you might want to comment that on this episode now every time we talk about anything adjacent to this we always get comments like that like i will delete your comment like don't bother (laughs) but (laughs) you know like if you're thinking that right now like let me just tell you that you were wrong and it's okay and like from someone who like had to do a lot of deprogramming and unlearning on this like i grew up in los angeles that town is infected with anti-fatness it it breathes it (laughs) you know it's like it's incredibly important it is an absolutely urgent lens for anyone invested in like a health justice you know cause at all or anything adjacent or just who wants to survive or build a better world and you talk about some strategies for trying to unlearn these things and like maybe we could sort of end on because like someone might be realizing the sort of gravity of the social reproduction of anti-fatness through the pandemic right now so maybe like it'll be less of a bummer if we talk about like some of the ways that that you discuss about sort of alternative frameworks unlearning these ideas different ideas about the body and what the body under capitalism is made to do and why we're made to think of the body that way. Yeah. So before I do that, I actually want to go back to what you just said, because I think it's really important um, around, you know, people, people commenting about, you know, well, you know, you're missing out, you're missing on, or you're not talking about the, the, the major health disparities that people who are overweight experience. And I want to respond to that by saying that, we have to consider, as we talked about in the beginning of the episode, who or what determines what is overweight or what is obese, right? Like what science is determining an ideal weight mm-hmm. that one can be over or under, especially if we are to be clear about the fact that n- no one person can ever be like, like there's no, it's, there's no way to make possible for all of us to be the same, the same size, the same look, the same physique. It's not possible. It, that's never been the case. Um, and so I think that, you know, we have to consider what science is going into determining all of these things. And, and if that science is, is something that's built on eugenics, that's built on, you know, genocidal efforts, that's built on anti-blackness, then it cannot be something that accurately that that gives us an accurate understanding of the ways that folks are being harmed. And so perhaps the best way to look at that is are fat folks dying from dying from being fat or are they dying from being mis- mistreated by medical physicians? Right. Are fat folks yeah. dying for being fat or are they dying for not having access to proper health care? Are they dying from not having access to to like better science that that actually engages their body and not engages their body against an ideal body, right? Like these are all things that have to be considered too, that determine everything about the way that the medical industry functions. And I think that that's so important to name because so often we think that 
these things are also not, you know, for, you know, lack of better phrasing, social constructs, right? But they are. And I know that people are like, right. I, 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 a lot of people will like say social, like socially constructed and then end it there. But I really do mean that like these things are sustained only by the ways that they are constructed and the ways that we are coerced into believing them. And maintaining and questioning them. it. We put in the work. Right. You know, we put in the work to to subject ourselves to these systems. Yeah. You know. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's just so important. And I wanted to, to touch on that first. But so well put. Thank you. Uh but yes, no, I thank think you, that, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that, yeah, I, I offer in the book, like, you know, um one of my favorite fra- favorite theorists. Her name is Joy James. She names in in a talk about um, one of her like um, theoretical projects called the captive maternal. Um, she names in one of her talks around that that you know destroying the world, ending the world, is an impossible task, but one worthy of us. And then another one of my very favorite theorists. Her name's Sakia Aman Jackson. She's a brilliant writer, and I I cite her a lot in my book. Um, she wrote Becoming Human. Um, she talks about the ways that things are sort of labeled as impractical or impossible um, because of them coming from Blackness, right, or, or being experienced through, through Blackness. And so what I want to name is that the impossibility of destroying the world is only impossible because Black being is unintelligible to the human psyche. And by that, I mean that struggling, uh, struggling against this sort of iteration of the world, right? If we, if we understand the world as something that Black folks are, are, are not intended to, to be part of, that, that if we understand humanness to be something that, that Black folks have oftentimes been, been coerced into, but also removed from, right? If we understand this, this sort of concept, then what's possible and what's impossible becomes something that's defined only by what white people can understand. And so what I'm offering is that destroying the world may, may not be something that is intelligible or something that white people can, can, can wrap their minds around, but that it's the task that all of us are worthy of. And by, and, and by that, that means doing the writings, doing the readings, doing the community organizing work, right? Engaging um, on in political education and, and inviting people into this knowledge to help foster better relationships with other folks, to help build mm-hmm. better communities with other people, right? To help create a foundation uh, where, where there is a particular type of togetherness that doesn't foreclose on this notion of the impossible if that makes sense and so what i'm mm-hmm. asking like for for readers listeners everyone to do is to just be willing <laughs> i think that that like so many of us who are in in this space you know as as communists as anarchists as black feminists all these all of these um disciplines and 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 sort of politics um i think the biggest thing that we have is that we're willing 
And I think that our willingness has to extend to other people who may not yet be willing, but but who but who are worthy of of that willingness. Um, and so I think, yeah, the the solution for me, if there is one, I don't I don't I don't know that there is a, a solution. Um, but if there is a solution, it only comes through that. Right. right. It only comes it only comes through our collective commitment to destroying these things through through our organizing, through our revolting, through our writing, through our reading, through our political education. Um, and most importantly to me, through our community building. Um, I think that's essential. So that that that's how I'll wrap that up. And I and I and I hope that it's it's helpful to someone. <laughs> No, I I think that's so well put. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, I think the only answer is to just accept like the task of learning how to be anti-eugenic and pro-fat and pro-illness and pro-disability and pro-difference. And, you know, there are so many ways to do that. And I think your book is a fantastic look at a specific intersection of fat studies that I'm like, you know, I'm very glad that I've been able to become exposed to. So, I mean, for that reason alone, um, I hope that our listeners take the time to read the book. And I really, I really appreciate that you took the time to come and talk about it as well. This has been really fun and I, I appreciate it a lot. No, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been like, a really necessary um, break in the day. So thank you so much. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. And um, we'll put a link to buy the book in the episode description. Um, Is there anything you want to plug before we go? You're on private on Twitter right now, I think, right? I am private on Twitter right now um, and probably will be for the foreseeable future, but I'm checking um, my requests. So um, yes, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Deshaun L-H, D-A-S-H-A-U-N-L-H. Um, and if you just want to like, you know, read my work or look at my um, services or anything like that, you can go to my website, which is DeshaunHarrison.com. Um, and yeah, I, I'm looking forward to um, interacting with people and, and, and growing together. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And um, Belly of the Beast, buy it. It's really good. I usually don't even say that, but I'm saying it now. Um, Thank you so much. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.